0: This is Van, I'm Electric Ghost, and we're live on the air with Lily Weiss for the first time. Welcome to the Van Electric Ghost Podcast. How are you doing tonight?
1: Oh, just fantastic. How about you?
0: I'm doing great. Want to let everybody know we are a featured podcast on the Newsly platform. You see the icon up there that says listen on Newsly. So if you use coupon code Ghost, you get one month free premium subscription. So you can stop scrolling and start listening. Again, we are a featured podcast on that platform. So we can check out Newsly after. Later tonight, you'll be able to listen to us on that platform. So one of the things we're gonna do today, and this is actually episode 907 of the Family Electric Ghost podcast. We've been around since 2016. And we're gonna focus on this topic, the sober joy revolution, how more people are finding happiness without alcohol. So without further ado, maybe you wanna start with that topic. I don't know where you wanna start um, in in relation to that topic you can kind of take the floor however you want to
1: take the mic i'm taking it i'm going to start with so often we talk about alcohol just in terms of an addiction and what i'd like to bring to the conversation is let's have a wellness conversation why does it just have to be about the sad stuff why, why can't we talk about the happy stuff? And there are so many cultural myths about alcohol that are out there that it is, it's kind of squashing our joy. And I wanted to I'd like to take the opportunity to clear up the myths and talk about some of the science on how I know those myths are not true and why it can be so joyful to be alcohol free and in fact how alcohol squashes your joy.
0: Yeah, I'm a big so, believer in it. I mean, I'm a, one of the things that happened to me when I was 27, I got type 2 diabetes, so I I really couldn't get into alcohol anymore. And I wasn't really into it cuz I had a father that had been kind of like a, a overdo it kind of guy. He was a sales guy and then on the weekend he kind of blow out and kind of do like, you know, drink the whole bottle. And that, to me, it kind of turned me off on alcohol. I was like, well, I didn't like the way he used it. And instead of like replicating what he did, I like, I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> but You um,
1: are a rare and beautiful human being. That is, um, so many of us had that same experience with our parents and swore we would never be them. And then suddenly one day we were like, oh my God. <laughs> what happened? I'm my mother. How did that happen to me? Yeah, I was, uh, my parents were, um, what I, it's, it's that alcohol use disorder is when it's going into disorder. I really steer clear of the word alcoholic because I find that very shaming and it's, it's not a word that the medical profession is using anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. Some doctors may be still using it, but when you go into the DSM-5, which is a giant Bible of psychiatric disorders, it's not in there. It's alcohol use disorder. And here's the crazy thing. I think so many people think when we say alcoholic, you're either an alcoholic or you're not.
0: Yeah. The
1: truth is it's a spectrum. Yeah, we think
0: there's different degrees.
1: Right? So there's 10% of people who are on, I call it AUD for short, alcohol use disorder spectrum. There's that top 10%, the champions. Those are the ones that are physically addicted. And if they stop drinking, they need medical intervention because it can be Mm life-threatening. It is life-threatening. You need, if, if you're physically addicted, you need to make sure that you go off of alcohol carefully. The other 90% of us are psychologically addicted. And that can be from a very mild, if you did dry January and your thoughts were, yeah, I can do it. It's not a huge deal, but man, I cannot wait until February 1st until I have that (laughs) again. Yeah. That might be a symptom that you're kind of straying in to a certain okay. level on to yeah. that spectrum. Like if you think that you can't have any fun without alcohol, um, if you, if the thought of doing a wedding alcohol free or your kid's birthday party alcohol free, you're not in that top 10% of champions that are physically addicted, but you're heading down the path of alcohol use disorder, but not to fear because, that the amazing thing about it, and we'll just clear up one thing right now that we are designed to become addicted to things.
2: Yeah. I've it's, heard of that.
1: Yeah, it's it's dopamine, right? And dopamine, we used to think it was just the, the pleasure hormone neurotransmitter, but now we know yes, pleasure, it gives us pleasure, but it does that so that we'll do that thing again and you that know,
0: is being a musician I, i'm aware of it because as a musician when i play with my band or i perform i kind of feel like a rush from from mm-hmm. playing and a lot of I think a lot of musicians can tell you that that causes problems like if you do that two-hour concert and then you get off stage and it's not there anymore then you're looking for the replacement
1: oh interesting yeah that's what i
0: found with my fellow musicians that ends up being the problem because the 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 act of playing that concert or doing that performance you kind of get a feeling of euphoria they i believe if you were measuring you probably are picking up that and then suddenly it just drops because it's done and i think that that has been the thing that hurts a lot of creatives is when they they go searching for like the replacement for that feeling because you know, they spent two hours on stage, but it's like 24 hours in a day. Right. And they might want to feel like that more than two hours. And so that's after-
1: longer concerts
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to keep them happy. That is super interesting. I never put that together before with, well, that's partially because, um, the standing joke in our house is I play the cello and the standing joke, I'm looking over at it now. Um, the joke at our house is if I ever played in front of people, my husband would come and announce me and then say, uh, Lily is coming to play this Bach piece. Would everyone please leave? <laughs> you know,
2: we'll you
1: <laughs> well, <I>, she's done. <laughs> I would have just the opposite, complete terror, freeze up, everything. The bow would be all staccato. I'd be shaking so much. Um, I think,
0: yeah. One of the other things I was interested in is like, I went to, you know, I went to college, I went to Bowdoin College in Maine, and they had a whole frat sorority situation. And what I noticed was that there was this a lot of binge kind of blackout drinking on the weekends. And it was like a bad habit. And I saw what happened is people continue that beyond college into the workplace, the same behaviors. You know, yes. and I was later, I was an Uber and I saw those type of people doing that kind of frat, superiority behavior, so behavior on Friday night. And it was continuing and they were 20, you know, 30, 40, 50 years old. And, you know, I was doing that job as a side job to pay for my music stuff. And it was, I was like, wow, this is like a flashback. These guys are still acting like Bowdoin. They're still right. acting like undergrads.
1: Right. And it, so it's not something that you grow out of because of its addictive nature. And so dopamine is the reason that things become addictive. And it's the same response to sugar, to gambling, to pornography, video games, all of these things. Anything that gives you an artificial, artificially large dopamine hit causes this problem because what our brains like to be in balance. And so what happens is we decide we're going to have a drink. And we, so we have the drink, and it hits our reward center like dynamite. It's just 10 times the normal amount of dopamine than you'd get from any other activity, than you'd get from being on stage, in front of an audience, than you'd get from sex, anything. It's just a much bigger artificial hit. And, and that lasts 20 minutes. So here's a little experiment for people pay attention. The next time you drink, time it. And you the first drink, you get a buzz. And that only happens on the first drink. You get drunk, but that buzz only happens on the first one. And it lasts between 20 and 30 minutes. And that's because you just went so high that your brain says, uh-uh, this is too much. I am going to bringing this back down in balance. And unfortunately, this is a really crummy trade and I call it borrowing joy from a loan shark because you get that 20 minute, 30 minute high and the not feel good chemicals last two to three hours. Mm -hmm. So you just, yeah, you got a big one for 20 and now you've got three hours of crummy feeling. And that is your cortisol, your dynorphin, your adrenaline. And what's gonna happen is, as you start to get those not feel good chemicals, and this is all gonna happen in the back of your brain, your are thinking noodle isn't coming up with this, it's all happening in your animal survival brain. Your brain says, oh, I don't feel so good anymore. Oh, I got an idea, I'll have a drink.
0: Have another drink.
1: And that'll make me feel better. And the problem is, you never get back to that first place. So because you get the
0: diminishing, diminishing returns. You, like you, yes. keep on, you keep on drinking and you think you're going to get that 20 minute initial buzz. It and you, go back. It, it doesn't go back. So you get into the cycle where you're probably just getting all the negative aspects yep. that as an Uber driver, I was actually seeing at the end of the night. Seeing
1: <laughs> <That's laughs> <laughs> and experiencing firsthand, right? And so uh, I, I think it might have been Ernest Hemingway, where, you know, a, a man takes a drink and then the drink takes the man i'm I'm not saying that exactly right but the the idea being you take the first drink and then the first drink orders the second drink
0: yeah that makes sense
1: and the second drink orders the third drink and so this is why because it shuts down your impulse control Mm. And now you're not thinking clearly anymore, which is why we say and do things we we shouldn't when we've been drinking. And here's the really sad thing that I think this younger generation is really catching on to is that you cannot selectively numb. Mm -hmm. So when you take a drink of alcohol, and I'm not judging anybody. I mean, I used to drink a lot what's that person that was drinking the bottle of wine i was doing it quietly at home sitting in my living room just drinking a bottle of wine and watching netflix not hurting anybody wasn't ruining my life wasn't ruining my job but i was in the middle of alcohol use disorder spectrum right they'd call me a gray area drinker i wasn't Mm -hmm. physically addicted i didn't have horrible withdrawal symptoms, if I didn't have alcohol, it wasn't going to kill me, but I missed it if I didn't have it. Mm-hmm. And that is a bummer <laughs> That is such a bummer when that goes off like, oh, I think I've crossed a line here somewhere. I'm not sure when that happened, but I'm seeing it. And so, so when I say you can't selectively numb, what I'm saying is you, you put the alcohol in your system It is both water and fat soluble. So that means it is getting into every nook and cranny in your body. It's getting into, it passes through the brain barrier. It's in your blood. It's because it's in your blood, it's getting everywhere. It actually goes into your gut and it literally leaks out of your gut with anything else that shouldn't be leaking out of your gut. And so it's everywhere. And so when we say we're drinking to have a good time, you get that. Once again, it goes back to you get that first 20 minutes. And then it's not so fun anymore. And you're not just and and for those people who are numbing social anxiety or they're numbing grief or they're numbing pain in their life, you're not just numbing your pain, you're numbing your joy.
0: Yeah, that's what I think the problem is. I was a sociology major. But what I what I used to see was that, you know, it's kind of like a peer pressure on a Friday, Saturday night was that, you know, in order to have that social lubrication, like people don't, aren't they feel like they had to have the alcohol to be able to approach women or women approach men or whatever, to approach their partner, because they couldn't do it straight without having a drink. Right. Because it's, the thing is, 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 is the problem is, is like, what I find is being an artist, being a writer, and is like you we try to access the really deep things that are kind of personal and they're hard, right? And if you reveal those things, you get scared. And I think people use the alcohol as a like a to reduce their fear mm-hmm. in those social situations. And those society kind of tells you that the ads for alcohol push that it's gonna help at the party, push yes. that, that that it's gonna get you there. And make you like, you know, debonair or you're going to be suave or you're going to be hip or whatever. It, it, it That's what people start to, you know, in the advertising, kind of like with smoking, it did the same thing. The Marvel right? man, what was he trying to show? You know, it, it, like, what were they trying to get make people feel? You know, so it, it, I think that's all those social influences is it, it, triggering you to think, oh, that's going to help me. The I, magic bullet.
1: <laughs> and it it really it just doesn't. And like I said, I'm not judging anybody. And my mission is to give people the facts so that they can make a decision for themselves. And what we're finding is there's, um, especially among this new generation, what? I, I don't, it's not Generation Z. What do we call these kids? Are they Z?
0: Uh, I don't know if it's like. Zeds. Y or X <laughs> or Z. I always <laughs> forget. Well, I know.
1: Young ones, yeah. <laughs> So- yeah, my
0: daughter's in it because she's 23 but like they seem to be more where she's like not into she's more totally into organics and and just you know she's like she's got a organic garden she's a horticulturalist she's like you know oh. she she has a hydroponic garden and she grows all kinds of natural things and she's you know very very open and doesn't need that social lubricant to be open. Right, that, That's the, the, the mindset with her generation is they talk about like everything. Yeah, and, they're not
1: afraid. They're vulnerable and, and, yeah. and they're okay and they're comfortable with it.
0: And I think, yeah, my generation before me, like my parents and my grandparents, they were all telling us what we couldn't do. What was you know, the social etiquette that what you're supposed to do. And so we got all these rules that ended up being like not right. And then you find out when you're, you know, when you're 40s or something, you find, oh, wow, that's actually not the right path.
1: (laughs) Right. That just wasn't true. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But, you know, know,
0: that's what we experienced. So we we end up having that baggage. But
1: everything from you can't wear white between you can only wear white between Memorial Day and Labor Day, I think it was when I was growing up. (laughs) No patent leather in the summer. Like,
0: who the yeah. cares? My dad was a sales guy. And part of the sales thing was they used to have all this drinking as part of the, like, you know, that was part of getting the leads. They, they, they got them into these situations where they go and they have these conventions or have these things that put them in situations where they had to drink and they became like, it's like a normal thing. And it's like not, not a very good thing. No,
1: <laughs> you know, it's it just, not a healthy thing at all. And So what I find with my, the the people I work with, I coach, are looking to become alcohol free. And one of the things that really can catch people up is uh, the social piece that you're talking about and the work piece. The feeling like if I don't drink with the group, then I'm I'm not going to fit in and I'm not going to get... The promotions, and I'm not going to get you know. It's the good old boys network with yeah, you know, yeah. you know, white dudes at the country club and the rest <laughs> yeah, of the country club. That's off, even, right? It's more,
0: yeah, it's more even more insidious at the country club at the golf course. Oh yeah. You know, they they I see that all these like business guys were getting blasted. I'm like, what kind of business are you doing? Yeah, but the time you coming back, it's like you're more blasted than the frat boys. It's like, well, what, what's going? <laughs> What is going on?
1: (laughs) Exactly. And what it does, in fact, is it tanks careers. It doesn't accelerate them. And one of the myths, and this comes from when back in the 30s, there were some people who were looking around saying, wow, these people appear to be addicted to alcohol, and we don't have any way to help them. So they came up with AA, and they started to try to figure out How do we fix this? And the stuff they came up with was based on the knowledge we had in 1934. Mm -hmm. And that knowledge said things like the only way to change a habit is through willpower. And the problem with with that is, well, it doesn't work. (laughs) The biggest problem with willpower is kind
0: of even like with prohibition is they felt like it was moral to get rid of it from a moral perspective. And then people went underground with it, like like drugs. And yeah, so it still, was- it still was rampant, even though it was legal, it just went underground. And then people got to it anyway.
1: And look what happened with smoking when we didn't say it was illegal, but we shared the health risks. And people made good decisions. And we said, and, you know, smoking is one of those things, like. Your smoking affects my air. So no you can't smoke around me. And yeah, we have rules. News...
0: Yeah, the secondhand smoke is dangerous.
1: <laughs> well, here's a news flash is that alcohol is as dangerous for you as smoking. And in fact, it when it goes into your body, it breaks down into some of the same components that are in cigarettes.
2: Oh wow. So that are so similar.
1: Yeah. Um, and it is, I think if you're drinking seven drinks a week, and that is um, whether or not you're having them all on a Friday night or Friday and Saturday or one a night, as in, I'm putting in air quotes, anyone who's not watching, um, but listening, um, moderate drinker, who we've all heard is perfectly safe for you. Well, the reality is that's the equivalent of a half a pack of cigarettes
0: mm-hmm
1: and you know no one's saying that moderate smoking is safe
0: yeah well it's, you know it's poison if you think about it a certain level like you're saying is it becomes like kind of poisonous to your system
1: oh like, it's not a certain level it, it's straight up poison and it's just a question of your risk tolerance like how much poison are you willing it. to tolerate yeah. right so the chemical equation for alcohol in a bottle that we drink is identical to the chemical equation of ethanol that we put in our cars.
0: Yeah. You don't want to drink that.
1: You know what? <laughs> That's what we're drinking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and people are now, I you know, people are stopping right now. They're putting this on pause, and they're madly looking that up, saying, "Oh, come on, man, she's making that up." No, I'm not making that up. That is a real thing. So it is poison. That's why you can die from an overdose. Yeah, of alcohol.
0: alcohol poisoning. Yeah. Well, I think a lot, a lot of the things that are addictive are, you know, they're deadly. You know, you people easily mm-hmm. look at fentanyl and they say, "Oh, look how tiny amount of that would just kill you," right? And maybe like the alcohol is a slower death than that because that, like, you get that max dose of fentanyl and you're gone. You know, it's just like heroin, you know. But, but, but the idea is it's still the same kind of thing, right? It's the same idea. Yeah. Right? You see
1: so many sad stories, like in the hazing where college students and frats or in, I guess, bands or I don't know. I, I didn't, wasn't in this fraternity sorority system, but I know hazing deaths happen every year. And I know, Kids die every year from alcohol poisoning, and it's just so heartbreaking. So you have the fast death from ingesting too much, and then you have the slow death, which is where it gets into the longer-term health conversation where it's linked directly to breast cancer, colon cancer, esophageal cancer, heart disease. The World Heart Organization said there is zero amount of alcohol that's safe. Wow. So See, you a can, lot of
0: people associate liver disease directly with alcohol, but they didn't They didn't know the things you just mentioned. Right. They, and, didn't, they didn't know the things about the heart and the other, other you know, situations and the heart disease. So, I mean, that, and, you know, you probably could get kidney, you probably all organ failures could happen.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. liver for sure. And the one I always try not to think about because i think back to how much i was drinking is the dementia Mm. like i said it passes through the blood brain barrier and it definitely is eating away at your brain
0: is there any connection to alzheimer's
1: there is a connection to dementia i am not an md so i'm not smart enough and don't have the study in front of me if i don't know something for absolute fact i'm not going to say it My
0: father ended up getting into dementia and Alzheimer's and and he had been as a very young kid, kind of a blackout drunk. It was Mm -hmm. kind of like the way they had, you know, they drank to excess in a very bad, dangerous way. And I think it led to that. I can't prove it, but I, you know, he ended up dying from Alzheimer's, but before the Alzheimer's, he had dementia. Mm
2: -hmm. And it
0: seemed to me that there was... I could, I could just knowing my father and knowing the experience that I saw the kind of self-destructive behavior. And I just like, it was very, you know, I was always pleading with him that I say, don't do this because it doesn't make sense. Right. But if you're in the middle of it and you don't go to go to a counselor, you don't get somebody to stop you and he's from that generation that didn't believe in getting (laughs) that kind of help, then, you know, you end up being on the train
1: there's that side of it and then there's the side of it that the help that was available i think we started talking about this and you and i were having a blast and just wandered into another direction but i was going to talk about how in the beginning days we thought that willpower was the solution to alcohol use disorder and the problem is it doesn't work so what would happen with someone like your dad and was certainly happening for me is that you drink And then you wake up at three o'clock in the morning. Side note, we can go over this, how alcohol wrecks your sleep. So you wake up at 3 a.m. and you are just so full of shame because you drank when you said you weren't going to. Mm -hmm. And then you wake up again, you know, seven, eight o'clock in the morning and you swear you're never drinking again. Now, I'm a super disciplined person. I a runner, I eat so healthfully, I don't do sugar. It's crazy how well I take care of my body and yet I was drinking alcohol every day. So the belief is that people who are on the alcohol use disorder spectrum are lazy or they don't love their children enough. The truth is they're addicted. It's not their fault because it's how we're designed but it is their responsibility. And in your dad's generation and my dad and my mom's generation, AA programs were anywhere between 13 and 33% effective. Mm-hmm. So even the help that you could maybe get stunk. Yeah. And then you were in this sort of place of you're, the, the whole trip is that you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life because you're not going to be able to go out. So your dad was a salesman. Mm-hmm. What they would tell him if you went to an a- AA meeting was, well, you just can't do those things where you got drunk before. Well, your dad's probably thinking, hey, this is how I'm feeding my kids.
0: Yeah. I think he tried to, you know, rationalize it. it you know, I have to do this because it's part of my, business profession that this is what we got, we we do.
1: And that may be very true that he needed to attend those things. And if you're using willpower, you wouldn't be able to attend them and stay alcohol free because you would be in your, your body would just be demanding it. Your brain, your psychological addiction would just be sitting on your shoulder poking at you. I want to drink. I want to drink. I want to drink. Then you could, keep that up for a day, a week, a month. Sometimes I went six months, but I always slid back down again. And mm-hmm. the the truth is, and we now, because because of the functional MRI, we know so much more about how our brains work. We know that willpower doesn't work. So the big question is what does? Yeah. And the answer to that is curiosity, and positive emotion. There's a really cool dude, Dr. BJ Fogg out of Stanford, and he wrote a book, Tiny Habits. And in his lab in Stanford, he did a meta study of habit change and from that meta study created additional studies. So he took the best of the best with the meta study and then created more. And what he has learned is that it is positive emotion that creates lasting change. So in the model I was talking about, drink, wake up at 3 a.m. with shame, We, our generation was raised to believe shame was doing something. You should be ashamed of yourself. I'll give you something to cry about. Don't make me stop this car. <laughs> I can go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Shame was, and I grew up Catholic in the Midwest for Pete's sakes. I, I, shame was just how things, how we thought we would change behaviors. We thought if we shamed someone enough, we would change their behavior, and it doesn't work. And, and, but yeah. we think by, well, I felt shame, that means that I'm doing something about it. When in fact you're doing nothing about it, you're feeling shame, but you're not solving your problem.
0: Well, yeah, not being proactive, you know. So, you're-
1: <laughs> and it's hard for people. It's one of the hardest things for people to let go of that because they feel like, oh well, I've hurt people, and I've hurt, you know, my family, and I or I've hurt my partner, or I've hurt my body physically, and there, it's really hard to let go of the shame because we believe. We should be ashamed. What really works is if you wake up at three in the morning and you drank, instead of feeling the shame, you could say, wow, I wonder why I did that. What's going mm-hmm. on? And so in the morning, when you're clear headed and you make the announcement, I'm not going to drink today. You don't just make the announcement, you, th- you make a plan. And you stop and think, well, what could I do differently today that, you know, yesterday, let's say I came home from work and I was super stressed and I thought I'm not going to be able to get rid of this stress unless I drink. So what's going to be different today? Well, I should figure out a way to offload that stress. And what happens is over a period of time, we use alcohol to solve problems. And the work that I do is part of it is just teaching people about what alcohol is, because step one of changing a habit is learn.
0: Mm -hmm. Learn
1: what you're doing. Right? So if you've learned that the reason you're getting a craving is because you're detoxing from yesterday's drinking and you're actually not going to die if you don't have that drink, and it's causing a cortisol reaction in you and it's probably going to last 20 minutes wow that that takes some of the pressure off so you're not thinking oh my god if i quit drinking i'm gonna feel like this every night for the rest of my life instead of well there's typically like two to four weeks where you're uncomfortable because because your body
2: you're be used to it
1: yeah your body's got to. It's when you're using alcohol to solve the problems and get the dopamine hits, you're not, your body's not creating dopamine naturally. Because why would it? Because you're just going to drink it later. And so it it takes a few weeks to a month for your body to realize, oh, she's actually not going to do that anymore. (laughs) I better start producing these chemicals myself. So you have a couple of weeks where you're crabby and you might make an announcement to your family, you know, I'm feeling kind of crabby here, but if you know it's coming and you know what it is, you're not afraid of it. So step one, get the knowledge. Step two, when you, instead of a relapse, what the language I use is a data point. You didn't have a relapse. You, you took a drink and what can you learn from that so that it's easier not to tomorrow
0: well i think it's part of the kind of like it's like when people go on a a diet or or in an exercise program and they're with some like you know alpha male and they, and they miss the step right they and then they got they say you well, go now you gotta go you're on step five but you messed up now you go all, all the way back to step one yeah you know, do you got do you really have to go all the way back to step one or do you realize that you're a human being and you're probably going to have failures. And it doesn't mean you have to like start and stop the whole thing.
1: I don't even call them failures. I'm just calling them data points. They're just lessons. It's what I (laughs)
2: have. You have
1: wins and you have lessons. And the faster you learned your lessons, the faster you're going to win. And you know, and, and it's just easier because lessons can be painful. But they're just lessons. So you wake up in the morning and you say, okay, well, I've learned that I get stressed and I'm used to having alcohol at five. So at five o'clock tonight, I'm going to meet a buddy and we're going to take a walk or I'm going to have a plan for an alcohol-free drink at night. So I still have something in my hand for Mm -hmm. me. I was alcohol-free beers, which are so good now. Just, Drinking an alcohol-free beer, show because I was used to that.
0: So is that kind of like the Nicorette gum, the they, the nicotine replacement, where people were smokers and they were using gum and other things to, to awesome. kind of
2: yeah,
0: to give themselves. Because if they're kind of a person that has to have something in, you know, in their mouth, that they they got to drink healthy, something. Yeah. yeah, so it's kind of like, well, if you could find something more healthy, you know, like, right. say, so some celery, eat some fruit, you know, like maybe take that time and learn how to, to cook something or like you said go talk to your friend
1: right make a plan. On the phone
0: on the phone you know go and and, and and find a way maybe not to be by yourself and connect right. with people and it's like you find different methods you know being an artist I just like it's like art therapy is what what we do as musicians mm-hmm. it's cathartic like if I if I get depressed I write a song and oh, I take that right. negative thing and I turn it or if I'm happy I write a song because I take whatever's happening and I turn it into some art And if you talk to a lot of artists, that's kind of what our mechanism is. We take what's going on, and you could be happy, sad, whatever, and you turn it into a piece of work. And if you find a way to kind of connect either your body, your mind, your heart, your soul, into other things other than that alcohol, you can redirect it. That's that's
1: 90% of my work is filling in the skill set that people are missing. And here's a crazy thing, joy, happiness are skills. You can if if you're not a joyful person, if you're not happy, you can learn how. There's classes you can take. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's just amazing because they're skills. And so if you're missing something in your life, you could ask yourself the question what skill do I need? If you're someone who struggles with depression, um, which I have a lifetime of navigating depression, I've learned skills to navigate depression. But so I think that, some
0: people need hobbies. Like if, if your hobby yeah. was like drinking, then maybe you find something to be proactively. No, like, you now, like Lego, like a rector set, you know? art therapy photography there's all you know whether you're you can find something other than picking up a drink you like can you transform that to a different action
1: i like to ask people what did you love doing as a kid because a lot of people just will look at you blankly they've used alcohol as their entertainment for so long they don't have the answer to that question and I asked the question back, what did you love as a kid? And for me, it was always being outside and picking flowers. And, you know, now I'm in the garden all the time and I'm running in the woods and all of that. What did you like doing as a kid?
0: I'm a mountain biker. So I initially was like just a street bike kid, you know, riding like a banana bike, like a Schwinn.
1: No, I I remember those banana bikes. They were awesome. Yeah,
0: I got a BMX and then in 1979 mountain bike showed up and i said oh that's it and i started going in the woods cuz i lived in new england lived in new, um i live in new hampshire but i lived in i've lived in maine and i've lived in massachusetts and, and what i found is like mountain biking that will get you from drinking because part of part of being a mountain biker is you have to have a certain aerobic capability yeah. to climb the hill and to be able to come down the hill and because when when you get into it you start to actually have athletic goals that like drinking would be the last thing you want to be able to do because you wouldn't have enough, you'll be dehydrated. You won't have enough energy. You won't be able to do it. And so if you get into something like hiking or walking or biking or canoeing, like what we do here in New in New England, um, drinking is kind of the, it would go against anything that, any of those activities, you wouldn't be able to really do it at the level that you need to. So that in itself kind of gives you a reason not to.
1: Yeah, it's surprising the number of athletes that drink. And I think in this last Olympics, uh, we saw so many of the athletes doing the alcohol-free beer. There was a study out of Australia where they took a group of soccer players and amateur players, and they took muscle biopsies, put them through a pretty hefty workout, And they gave some of them alcohol, some of them no alcohol. And then the ones that drank, you know, and they mixed it up. Like you had alcohol and protein and carbs and you had alcohol and protein. So they did all the mixing up. So the people who drank alcohol, their muscle biopsies showed they were recovering 40%. Well, it was really 37%. I was exaggerating. 37% more slowly than the people who were alcohol free.
0: Yeah, that's where that's I kind of a found out.
1: Number.
0: Yeah. Whether when I was mountain biking with guys, that like they said, "Well, I can't drink anymore if I'm going to be with you, because I can't get up the hell because <laughs> they, they, they couldn't get up the hell. because, like, like if they were partying on Friday night and they come on the trail it would be on Saturday, they'd be lagging. I was like, I can't get up the hell. Then he asked me, he's like, "Okay, how come you can get up the hell? I said, "Well, I ain't drinking the night before." Yeah.
1: <laughs> i can tell you i am uh i've said i'm a runner and i am faster than i was 10 years ago i'm 25 pounds lighter and i'm about a minute or two faster a mile now i run very slowly i like long distance and i'm not i am not a speed demon but i, I like long miles and it's amazing what the energy level I have now compared to what it was before.
0: Yeah. Your recovery is so much better. Like, because like you have to be able of re- the thing about mountain biking is you go up that hill and then you come down the hill. So you're like maxing your heart rate and then you yeah. come down, then you have to max it again. Cause you go up the hill, downhill, up a hill, downhill. So you suddenly get this really high heart rate. Then it kind of drops off. You got to hold on and then you got to do it again. You keep on going up and down, up and down the whole ride. And so you have to have a good recovery or you'll just crap. You'll just crap out. <laughs> you, won't, yeah. you you feel so bad. But a lot of the guys I was with that had partied, they have to stop and then sit there for like a break because right. they can't recover. Right. And they're like, wow, I can't do it. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, because you can't do that the night before.
1: <laughs> right. And new England is steep. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: It's not a joke. It's not just flat. It's like, it's up and down, yeah. up and down, up and down. And, um, it was it's kind of a cool thing to get somebody into, and I actually got a bunch of guys into, and they they actually stopped drinking as much. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. and that was kind of cool because it's like, hey, you know, your girlfriend must be happy with me.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. That is so awesome. Yeah, that if I I ridden my bike, I did a road bike ride across the United States, and I I remember when I hit New England, <laughs> I was um, you would pedal downhill as fast as you could because that would get you three up that other up hill <laughs> the next hill and it was such a trip because I was on a loaded bike with all my camping gear. So my bike was heavy uh probably 30 pounds of camping gear. And so man, you'd go flying down those hills and whoa,
0: imagine doing that in the, the camp woods camp. on creek beds. Yeah. Inside the woods and then coming down like a ridge line trail. It's like you have to be able to hold on, yeah. and, and, you know, cause you just wore yourself climbing then you have to come down. So it's like it, it, in order to be healthy, you, you immediately decide like there's certain things you have to let go. Like you, you can't be smoking. You probably right? can't be, you know, in order to get to enough aerobic activity to be a good mountain biker, now you could push yourself and say, I'm going to blast out, drink, whatever, but you're going to pay for it. Are are. Right. So then you have to make a decision, what is more important to you, you know? And then I think that's what you have to look at your life and like at the point like you did, where you like, it, it was that drinking that that wine, it wasn't fun anymore for you. It wasn't something that you wanted to keep doing. I think that's where people, when I've talked to, to people who are life coaches or therapists, they say people get to that point. You never know where it is, but when they decide they have to make that change, right?
1: I'm inviting people to think about it differently because, yeah, that's where I was when I stopped. But I I was just stuck in this place of if I quit drinking, I'll never have fun again. And oh, by the way, I'm not having any fun anymore. I went from this super adventurous person who was always out doing things in nature to somebody who was sitting in a chair, drinking a bottle of wine, watching Netflix, which was not fun. Yeah. When there were some good shows, but it's not a lifestyle for me. And w- I hit that point. But what I'm really inviting people to do is if you're a healthy, thoughtful person, here's an experiment try alcohol free. Do, you know, 35%, I think Forbes magazine said 35% of Americans participated in dry January. Now, some of them didn't get past day two, which is fine. Yeah. That, by the way, is another symptom that you know you know you're on the alcohol use disorder spectrum. Your life may not be falling apart, but if you did Dry January and you couldn't do thirty days without drinking, that's a wake up call.
2: That's a clue.
1: Yeah. I, yeah, that's a big clue. I would have been that person. Some some years I would have made it, but I would have been jonesing for February first. Other years, I wouldn't have made it past day two. So what I'm inviting people to do is understand that alcohol is numbing your joy. It is stealing your health. It is stealing your health span. If we can think about a lifespan versus a health span. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It's cutting short your health span. And if you try, just try being alcohol free at a party. And yeah, it's uncomfortable for the first 10, 15 minutes. And some people might make a snide comment. It happens occasionally, not very often. Usually, you you know, I ask my clients, we think up something to say in advance or we set up a tactic so that you're there first and nobody knows it's an alcohol-free beer and not a regular beer. Most of the time, nobody cares what's in your glass. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who are the real drinkers, are thinking, yay, more for me, like literally. So <laughs> yeah. I'm inviting people to just try it.
0: Is that like, what you call sober curious? Is sober that,
1: curious, yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess the other term I was wondering about, what's gray area drinking?
1: Gray area drinking is what I would call myself where I was in that I wasn't really hurting anybody or anything, but i was drinking too much and i knew it mm. and it was affecting me a, a big battle was going on inside of me if you ask anybody other than my husband they would have never guessed in a million years that i was over drinking because yeah, i wasn't sure. doing it in public i was doing it at home I, I would have the two glasses of wine at dinner but then i would come home and finish the bottle and i was super careful about drinking and driving I was uh I live in Canada and mm-hmm. um was on a permanent resident card I married a Canadian and if I got a DUI they could throw me out of the country so that yeah, was that's a
0: critical big yeah deal. That's, yeah it's a big thing so you I started taking that serious well you took it serious because <sighs> that's where you know I think with some of the problems that people start to realize they got a problem that if you say you're never gonna drink and drive right and then you find yourself getting in DUIs all the time. Right. Then you know you must have a problem because you tell yourself that you're not going to do it, but you go and have like five DUIs. It's like, really? It's like you say, so you know there must be a problem if if you run into the law.
1: Right. And you could even find out that you have a problem a lot sooner because what we do is we start these negotiations. And if you're negotiating your alcohol use, I would say that you're probably on the alcohol use disorder spectrum and that you're probably, and then, so that's what I would call you a gray area drinker. Like you're, Mm. you're not hurting anything or anybody, but you could. Yeah, you could. I have a coach friend who had a third glass of wine after playing tennis at the country club, got in a car accident. Somebody got hurt. She landed two years in the state pen
0: it's a serious thing because a lot of people you know it's social drinking it's so there's so much pressure like in business like i was a bit i mean, you know i'm I'm an it guy and it's kind of nerdy but even within that field you know people go like you know you know after work drink and people go after work drinking and they weren't thinking about designated drivers and people were getting people were getting pulled over and then the business had to start saying well we can't really Like, sponsor this anymore because we're getting too much heat.
1: Right. They could get in a lot of trouble because if they served the drinks and somebody gets hurt or killed, they're open to the lawsuit. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're somebody who says, I'm not going to drink and drive, and then you drink and drive, even if it's the second or third glass of wine, if you said you weren't and you did that, you're starting to stray. Hit the the spectrum. Right. (laughs) Or if you're saying, well, I'm just not going to drink on the week. I'm only going to drink on the weekends. I'm not going to drink during the week. And then it's Wednesday and everybody else was having one. So you go ahead and have one. Okay. You're starting to stray into that territory.
0: Or if you think it's okay, because you use like uh, a Uber or a Lyft, right? Right. 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 I was like, I was an Uber or Lyft driver and I used to see very extreme behavior because people, because they didn't have their car. I had clients that every Friday, Saturday, they got totally whacked out because yeah. they felt like, well, there's the Uber. Right, right, right. But then it's like, you guys, <laughs> I kind of hurt yourselves to, like, to the point where I was like, I didn't even want to deal with these guys anymore. I didn't want to encourage it. So I actually stopped picking some of them up. I said, you know, I don't even want that cr- crowd because it didn't feel right to me. I started looking at like, some guys were like, oh, that's money. I was like, well, I don't want that money.
1: No, it's icky money, and then somebody might throw up in your car. and that's, yeah. that's when I'm out. As soon as someone throws up, I'm out.
0: Yeah, I got out because what? I just started going that direction because people were getting more less and less under control
1: yeah. because
0: they started putting it on the driver, and then we're like we're enabling like out of control behavior. And I just took a stand where I don't I don't want to do that. So I would stop at a certain time during the day and do more drives during, earlier right. in the day so I didn't run into those people. Right. Yeah. Um, Makes but it work. was just like, right. it's a choice you make that like, you enable that, that, or do you, do you say, well, it's just money. So I'm going to make the money. I just say I, I made a choice. I didn't like the eye of, 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 facilitating, enabling that behavior.
1: Well, plus it's, they're not fun.
0: <laughs> no, they weren't.
1: <laughs> and Here's something really interesting. Another little thought experiment for people is if you think that alcohol is the elixir of fun at a party, go to a party and don't drink and watch. Yeah. And I think what you're gonna find is as the evening goes on, people get louder and, and they get louder because they're the alcohol ruins your inhibitions, and also mm-hmm. you can't hear as well. It's numbing oh, everything. Your taste you're tasting well,
0: your numbs your hearing, hearing, so that's why they get louder.
1: Yeah, you can't you can't feel right. That's why that we drop things and we you know and and we get wobbly right. Everything is numbed, not just part of you. And it is so so. Go to the party and watch this. And what you'll find is these conversations that people think they're having that are so deep. Nobody's listening to each other. <laughs> they're repeating themselves and they're talking over each other and they're not really even having the same conversation.
0: Yeah, it kind of disconnects. It's like disconnected, disconnected, disconnected. And then it's like, it's not fun anymore. But then it's like maybe because you don't, you're so like out of your mind-body connection. You don't know. To me, the thing about, what I think once you start to realize that you don't have to be numb to have fun, that that then you, you start to have some truth. And you start to, and it's hard because when you're honest and you can't hide behind that, then you have to show people who you really are, you know, and, and a lot of people are scared of that. And it, you know, as you get older and you find a way to be like less fearful of, of the real you, um, then, then I think then things start to connect better and you actually have real conversations yes. with people that are actually rememberable yeah. and actually significant and that something that's like a disconnected mind. Like, like, where's my mind? I don't, I don't even know what I was talking about.
1: Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I had a great conversation on a podcast last week with a guy who as an experiment decided not to drink on his beach vacation with his kids and his kids were little at the time. I think they were like five, six, seven years old, that super fun age. and, what he realized was in previous years, he would have thought the fun was sitting with the adults, drinking all day and what he, he was now in the ocean with the kids having a blast. He said the kids were just every, you know, it was a bunch of families get together every year for this event. And all the kids were loving him because he was in playing with them. And a lot of parents are rolling their eyes right now. Like that's really boring. Well, it is if you're hungover,
0: yeah yeah if you're not connected like you know yeah like if i I, i'm the kind of guy i'll be playing with the kids you know getting them to you know get their bmx's and jump ramps and oh fun go go out and skateboard and do i'm the guy that'll be like skateboarding with them but if you're with the adults drinking you ain't you ain't gonna be on the skateboard no you you don't have the balance to be on the skateboard (laughs) Yeah, and
1: you're he was looking back at where he was that previous year thinking that really wasn't that fun, and then he said his biggest problem was he would get back from that week at the beach, and he would be a wreck physically, because mm-hmm. they drank so much. He said, yeah, they he was just out. stressed, and if you just have one drink, your cortisol level is raised for the rest of the week. Wow,
0: so you're kind of really doing yourself you know you need a vacation after you'd you think you had a vacation.
1: Right. That's the real detox that you need. And that, and now you're crabby. And I, I know we're coming close to the close of our hour here. And I'll say the one last thing about sleep that I said I would mention is that we have cycles of sleep. And for you to get a good night's rest, you need to complete all your sleep cycles. And the last two are very critical in that the last two REM cycles that you have, you process the previous day's emotions and you process all the things that you've learned. Mm-hmm. And guess what you don't get if you have alcohol? You and I'm talking about a glass. You
0: don't, cycles. you don't get those cycles?
1: One glass of wine is going to interrupt those last two cycles. Wow. Because what happens is, Remember I told you about the seesaw where you get the 20 minute of woohoo and then the three hours of uh uh-oh. In the three hours of uh uh-oh, and that's three hours per drink, you get, there's the chemicals in there that numb you and make you super tired, but there's also adrenaline in there.
0: Oh, so people have this feeling that when they drink it, it's going to help them sleep, but what you're saying is actually going to give them bad sleep.
1: It's going to give you really bad sleep. So it's going to help you fall asleep. And I was one who swore that if I didn't drink, I would not be able to fall asleep. And I had to have a serious conversation with myself about the facts. Like, is that true? And so I learned, well, actually, it's wrecking my sleep. And it was adding to my hot flashes. And the problem is in the first couple weeks, you struggle to fall asleep. That's going to go away.
0: So a lot of people are probably taking sleep aids because mm-hmm. they've been drinking and maybe they're not drinking, Drinking, they're, in, they're on the spectrum, right? They're not to the point where they're needing medical care, but they're interrupting their sleep. And then they're having to get all these sleep aids when they're actually kind of caused, causing that problem and they're not aware of it because they had the belief, oh, if I drink a little cognac or I have a little, it's going to make me fall asleep. you know. And that's why a lot of people from my generation, generation before, that's what we were told.
1: Absolutely. You came by it. We all came by it completely, honestly. And uh, uh, some doctors will still say, oh, just have a little glass of wine before bed and that'll help you get sleepy. Well, that's true. It will. But then at three in the morning, that adrenaline's going to kick in. All the chemicals that make you drowsy have worn off and now you've got adrenaline going through your system. Yeah,
0: well, you don't want that. at that point, like you yeah. want to sleep.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's not you the time to- for adrenaline.
0: Now you want a full sleep. So I think this has been a really illuminating episode. And I just want to mention your website again, like coachingwithlily.com. And, and what do people find there if they go to coachingwithlily.com?
1: What they'll find there is just a little bit about me and a little bit about the method that I, how I work with people, which is essentially what we talked about. First, we learn about it. And then we start having, you know. Then we try it, and we either like with your BMX and your skateboarding, right? You try a new trick, you're not going to be good at it right away. Yeah, it doesn't stop. It just means yeah, you keep on doing
0: it. You get up you and do it again.
1: Do it back to day one, where you don't know how to ride a bike, right? You, you, every day you get a little better and a little closer to your goal. And so what I offer people is uh, just a free. Uh, I call it a strategy session where we'll set a time to talk and I'll ask you some questions and find out where you are and where you want to be. And then we'll talk about if I can help you. And if I can't help you, I will help you find someone who can. I know well, lots of people.
0: That's cool because a lot of people, you know, I don't know if they say that and that's cool that you said that because you know, it, it, when you're, when you're a mentor, it's cool that you're actually, Help people, and I've had people in my life like, well, if I can't help you, I'm gonna send to somebody that. Well, you know, and you know, I'm in IT, and because you try to find people who can help you do something, and, and some people can, some people can, and when they send you to the next person. That's always appreciated. So I I, I, I appreciate your time with us tonight on the Family go show, and um, like I said, your audience will uh, will be able to get to this on a landing page we're gonna to give to you tomorrow. We were on Facebook Live and YouTube, and you'll have those. Maybe after here, I'll send you the permanent links to Facebook Perfect. and YouTube for your audience. But we will have a landing page everywhere else that people like to watch or listen. We'll be available by tomorrow to your audience. You can use however you want. You know, oh, Thank you again for being on the show.
1: This has been so fun. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's, I just love podcasting. You know, I found it back in 2016, and it's been a really cool way to connect with people yes. and learn. You know, and, you know, I learn outside my area of expertise every day, something new uh, doing this. And it's it's really fun for me. And I think the audience likes it, too, because I like to keep it very wide, very yeah, expansive, yeah, yeah. what, very what I do here, which is kind of what people say you should do. But I don't always do what people say you should do. You <laughs>
1: get to do whatever you want. You be you. I am. Um, I actually have a computer degree. I studied. I graduated with a computer degree in 1985 when you walked around with your IBM Hex card oh, wow. in your pocket.
0: I still deal with vSAM DB2 databases. I am <laughs> a, I am um, a business system analyst that designs policy administration systems for insurance companies. Oh, wow. And insurance yeah. companies still use DB2 vSAM database structures and COBOL. Oh, I was the, just going
1: to ask. Tell me, they're not still using COBOL? Oh,
0: well, we still have a lot of COBOL based oh,
1: stuff. Oh, that's so awesome! I that was PL one <laughs> was my first language, but COBOL was the language I used mostly when I was a coder. When I was, and I did banking and logistics, and
2: yeah,
0: I yeah did and that it's weird over. that world is still that like we've moved to you know Java front ends and you know .NET and blockchain, but behind it, at the base of a lot of our core systems, are mainframes. Mm-hmm. Hey, you need know, so,
1: help, call me. I could probably <laughs> still remember how to code. I could tell you what a sock for is. In a oh, yeah,
0: we're still or... deal, I'm dealing with that stuff every day. We deal with abends, abends all the time. <laughs> I just had some a couple hours ago. So.
1: <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah, so you're speaking my language. I am proud of my nerd nature. I wave my nerd flag with pride.
0: Well, it's cool. That's how I pay for my mugs. Yeah, I pay for my Rollins and stuff. It's like I have a day job that's better than just a like a starving mover. Um, Perfect. So yeah, he's like, like, that's how I get into my music. But uh, thank you again for being on the show, and uh, we'll we'll talk to you more in the future.
1: Thanks.